Whoa, we're kicking it off real quick, hey? Do you have other banter? No, I do don't. Do you have other things to get to? I don't. Wait, yeah, we should. Did you want to do like a fit me... check? Do you want me to ask you what you're wearing today? Mm, no. Okay. All okay, right, maybe, then. maybe. What are you wearing today? Why is this you? even a thing? I don't this know. Maybe it's because we stand and record this podcast now. No, you know what's changed? We have always recorded this at home, okay? So either me in my home, you in your home, or at your place, yes. right? But now we record it at FM Below Ground, which is in a public Central. setting. Yeah, in I have Landmark. to get dressed. Both of us have to get dressed. We have to look presentable to come out here. And so you can tell me what you're wearing. I'm wearing. No, I don't. I don't like this. Tell people about your shoes. They're tell these, people about these, your shoes. They're these uh, Visvum boots that oh. I DIY'd. Visvum Virgil boots. <laughs> Why did you DIY them? Why? Because yeah. I actually was trying very hard to find a pair of all black boots that could be resold. That could be resold? Like basically, you know, when you wear through a sole, like you just you, like a good, re- oh, a good res- year wealth. Re- yeah. Okay. I Which thought you meant resold. like resell. No, no. Well, yeah. Like that had resell value. Yeah. Okay. All right. So and- I dyed the welt, which was like a natural leather color, mm. black. And then I accidentally got it on the Vibram sole. Like this white, crispy room yeah. sole, and I ended up having to paint the whole thing. And then I also... Has it come off? The sole? Like the actual bottom? Well, I never got the bottom, but you can see I kind of oh, messed yeah, up. I can but I it. also got an enamel paint pen, and I painted the eyelets, but that's also kind of appealing. I just wanted like a blacked out boot. I also want like... I'm now at a point where I just want to buy things that I know that I'll just wear and like... Yeah. I really think twice about. No, I agree. I also... Don't really like them, like they don't look that good. What? Yeah, I just I think proportionally they're kind of off. Wait. Yeah. So you went to all this effort I didn't to get find a- an all black boot, but no, you actually no, settled no. on something that you're not even really happy with. You, happy I enough. think you could have looked harder. Well, I couldn't try them on. That's the thing. Like I, I just bought them online. <sighs> okay. Anyways, I don't know. I feel like wow, this is really, really. I really feel like tangent. you could have tried longer. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash making. All right. My topic this week is Music is the Creator Economy Catalyst by Martin Walraven Freeling. So this appeared in the, I guess it's kind of like a newsletter. It's like a twice a week publication called uh, Music X Tech X Future. And this piece discussed the impending, well, is it really the impending? It's like how the creator economy by virtue of music, will expand and or the opportunities that will come from music. Okay? Sure. So one of the first things they lead with is, and 
I apologize because obviously, well, should I apologize as a podcast? Maybe not. But anyways, they lead with a graphic and the graphic is a bunch of, it's a bunch of bubbles and each bubble has its own categorization of a social platform. And under subculture, they have Reddit and then chat is like WhatsApp, Snapchat, Discord. Under social networks, it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And under creator, it's TikTok, Twitch, and YouTube. So for people who are listening to this, are the bubbles overlapping or are no, these just diagram. groups? These are just, just groups. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, so these bubbles, not in the metaphorical sense, but batches of platforms are what the Knight Institute, which is this, I guess, Institute on Media, mm-hmm. essentially, they call them logics. And they go on to say, and this is a quote, creator logic platforms are for everyone and enable users to share a specific type of media like video, live streams, or art in a one-to-many fashion. They're home to, quotation marks, creators, people who consistently make content for the platform, often as a source of income. Some examples of creator logic are YouTube, TikTok, Twitch, and Wattpad. The last one is story-based social media platform that just sold, actually. Cool. So what's interesting is like platforms like Twitch, which began for video game streaming, have also been very accepting of music. So basically people go on there to also broadcast and play music. And if you start looking at these other platforms, you start to understand how big of a role music plays within their landscape. So for example, if you had to take a guess, what percentage of content on YouTube is music derived? You read my notes. I looked at your notes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, dude. Anyways, it's 22%. It's 22%. You want to not prepare. Um, If I would have had to guess, I would probably have guessed lower than that. 22% sounds like a good... It's like almost quarter. That's pretty significant. Yeah, that's quite a bit. You know, and I guess I would have guessed lower because I don't go to YouTube for music primarily. I go for YouTubers and TV shows. Yeah, because you often... This is the thing too. Is like Actually, it's quite a high number because if you think about it, music doesn't always exist with a visual. Yeah. And it's... I wouldn't necessarily say that visuals enhance music either no visuals actually could enhance certain things right it's kind of like why some people like podcasts like yes i I see value in seeing joe rogan's face but there's also value in just hearing people speak it is interesting about music and you know visual albums as they call it have existed for a while now you know probably most people think of lemonade beyonce's visual album but for me i always think of music as something you do with other things like i'm not looking to just sit down and watch music which is what i think of when people like play music videos yeah you know that's probably just the two of us yeah so going on as they discuss about this creator economy and how people are able to monetize and make money through the act of creating stuff like content one interesting highlight is according to peter yang who says that twitter is actually well positioned to help facilitate the creator economy because of stuff like spaces, their audio-based sort of clubhouse clone and Creators in general or specifically in the music space? Well, what they say is, I think in general, just for creators, like he never really specifies in specificity, like, oh, you know what? This is for music creators. I think it's more about the creator economy. I mean, relevant to last week's subject. Yeah. Where we talked about Twitter's monetization possibilities. Yeah. One thing that Yang also says in this article towards the end is... Yeah, yeah it's like pulled from Yeah, from, pulled from this article. Yeah. Uh, Peter Yang. 
The key element to this that Yang focuses on is the ability to mix content types. Again, this will have to fit the personality of the artist, but the message is clear. Flip the value relationship between yourself as artist and fan, and there's a lot of value you can capture by directly adding value to the lives of your fans. This two-way street seems paved with music, and while other creators can walk across it, it's music that often acts as a springboard to growth and success. So I, I guess before I move to the conclusion, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. I guess it's just, just in general, right? I think the state of the internet and the digital economy has facilitated the creation of things, the sharing of things, and the monetization of things. Yeah, definitely. No one disagrees. No, I'm not disagreeing. Now, what happens when we significantly increase the supply of said creative goods, right? And I think that we all have this aspiration of monetizing and subsisting off the stuff we create, but what is the reality? And maybe it doesn't even matter because maybe it's like, whether it's creative or like me wanting to be a professional athlete, me wanting to be, well, I guess most other professions are a little bit, not easier, but the demand for it is probably a little bit higher. So the demand for, how do I put this? Like, Are you trying to say that the supply of creative content, creative goods- Will go up. Keeps going up. Correct. You know, because of- all of these things like Substack and Twitter and et cetera, et cetera. But the, the demand, demand of it is, is the same. Constant, relatively constant. Like, are we going to demand more? And are Because we, we only have so much time, right? Yeah, totally. So I don't, I think that there's so much interest in this creator's economy, but I wonder if it's only because it's like a nice, romantic, sexy thing. Like the thing that makes the creator economy so great is like, oh, Follow your passion, like all that other bullshit. And I don't disagree with that. But at the same time, it's like, honestly, there's going to be a self-weeding out mechanism that you can continue to tell people to pursue their passions. But there's a very true reality on the other side that some people are going to have to face. Okay. Well, one, I think it does something for the individual, even if you cannot make a complete living off of what you create and put out there. But theoretically, if we continue increasing supply. Well, what I'm saying is that it is significant just in the fact that there can be more creators, that we can all be creators, even though we cannot all make a sustainable living off of doing it. And I know that's, that's the romantic part, but what I'm saying is that it does satisfy a need that I think people have. A to personal be able, need. A personal need on an individual level to make stuff and put it out there. But then that's not the creator's economy. Okay, then. in terms of monetization, yes, I know, this is the creator part, no economy. I think that for it to really be successful on a wide scale for everyone, we we would have to change what we pay attention to. We'd have to stop paying attention to things like NBC or, you know, big mainstream Which platforms started, like, or like Disney Plus, you know, like if enough people choose to instead support individual animators and you know, that they join a bunch of Patreons and really look forward to those animations instead of paying the subscription fee to Disney+. Plus. I don't like happen. that example. Why not? Because I think that the example you gave is probably a very big undertaking versus something a little bit more straightforward. And Okay. You know what I mean? Like, I think yeah, writing totally. a newsletter and monetizing a newsletter versus you putting out a new animated short every week or in some sort of way that allows people to continually check in. I think that's also part of the creator's economy is that unless you have 
relative consistency. And I'm, I'm not saying that once a month is not consistent, but it's certain creative right, outputs right, right. are a little bit more conducive. I agree with you. Like our attention as humans is finite and we already spend as much attention on entertainment and culture as we're going to spend. And it's just about how do we divide that up, that attention? And will things move towards we spend 100% of our attention and entertainment on independent individual creators? Or do we continue to divide it up between things like other mainstream larger platforms? I mean, I've, I've, I've spoken about this at length, privately, semi-privately, not because I'm like trying to hide these, these, these sort of uh, trend forecasts, call it whatever you want, right? Like I've talked a lot about media fragmentation. And I always say that in a world where there's more consolidated stimulus, right? So it could be, there's only five channels. Now there's infinite number of channels. So simultaneously, how do you push people down certain channels to the amount that you as the person creating for that channel can monetize it? And mm -hmm. also, how do you find the channel that's relevant to you? Like those are two things that I actually think make the creator economy as an ecosystem viable because the tools are there. But the like I said, on the other end, are you able to generate enough awareness for this to be meaningful where it, it's not just a hobby? Because I, I do think that back to your other point, like people just need to create and I agree. But at some point, us as humans, like we also have this belief that time is valuable. So unless this is somehow allowing you to, I don't know, some sort of like keeping yourself at ease, right? Because you're, you're creating something, you're creating music, but you have a day job. At what point does your bet on being a, a fully paid creator stop? And you're like, I have to give this up. Well, I don't know. We're kind of talking about it. This is how I feel now. We're, we're kind of talking about it in like extreme terms. Like it's either you are a independent creator and that's how you make your living or you have a day job. But I think the future looks like people having mixed income from a variety of things. Yeah. So you work a part-time job in an office three days a week and then you make music two days a week and you make, you're able to make, I don't know, 25% of your total living expenses off of your music. Yeah. And it's not going to ever be 100%. Yeah. Maybe. And you're okay with that. Individual creators recognize that the fact that I can make some amount of the money I need to live off of this passion is yeah. sufficient. But I also wonder if putting the creator economy and dangling that carrot in front of you is actually incorrect. What do you mean? So, for example... Who's dangling the carrot? By, I mean, everyone that's pushing this forward, this narrative, like the creative economy and the creator economy is there for you to insert yourself into. Because I actually think that it's, it's not the best way of approaching creative output. So I think, let's use ourselves as examples, right? Like, how much have we paid ourselves from this podcast? Nothing. But why do we do it? We like doing it. Exactly. I sound like hostage there. We like, like we sustainably, doing it. This is sustainable because of we see some value in this that extends beyond the monetary side, right? Okay. So, so you're saying incentivizing people with the possibility of making money. Knowing how difficult it is. The, uh, the entire idea of doing creative pursuits. Yes, I think so. Weird. Well, let's put it this way. Kind of like, weird. Like, you and I have received, like, we basically... But it was... Okay. But you have to believe that creative work has monetary value. 
Yes, we don't pay ourselves from doing this there podcast. Is that, yes, but I under I fully recognize that doing a podcast is work, and it has a dollar amount to it. Yes, like I would never tell someone don't doubt that do this for free. It's not even work. But I, I think that the the other flip side is that going forward, we will have a finite amount of money going towards these creative endeavors and these creators. Approaching it from a way that's self-sustainable without money makes the money maybe even that much more rewarding when it does come or if it does come. Like, let's put it this way. Like, let's say tomorrow you are like making and making it up blows up. You're getting paid $10,000 US an episode. Sure. Right? Doesn't that fundamentally change? Like nothing's changed in the product. Maybe, maybe you psychologically have this new pressure, but I think that it changes. But I think the narrative about money in relation to creative pursuits isn't just for creators but for audiences so i can see what you're saying about in terms of a creator's mentality the pressure of making money influences the work that you do but it's it's a good thing to have the public the general content consuming public to associate reading this newsletter cost me money Listening to this podcast mm-hmm. cost me money. Yeah. And not because like we're trying to milk people for like $2 here and there, but because these things should also be considered as labor that has value. monetary value. Yeah. yeah. So it's hard to do both of those things at the same time. Yeah. Because you're trying to tell creators like, don't tie your creative work solely to how much money it earns you. But you also want to tell the audience any creative work is worth money yeah yeah well yeah actually like i totally subscribe to what you just said it's like it's very contradictory it's a massive contradiction but i don't think they're happening in parallel because what i mean is that like at the very root ongoing sustained creative work does need to begin with you internally right yeah like yeah yeah how many how many super successful like entertainers just like throw in the towel because like hey i'm che- i'm gonna check out here Right. And I think that's kind of what I'm getting at is that you actually need that foundational base before you go forward and think about monetization. Yes. Because we talked about this like ages ago about podcasters who gave up after like four episodes because they weren't making money. Yeah. Like it kind of makes me question your intentions in the first place. Yeah. But this is me and maybe this is a defense mechanism, but I've traditionally been able to convince myself that I am deriving intangible value from doing something that isn't monetary. So I actually, like I said, I've said this many times, like I look forward to us being here once a week to talk about this stuff because there are certain things that I get out of it that I think are value additive to other parts of my life. Sure. And that's how I convince myself to do a lot of shit out there. Yeah. 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 I mean, this actually reminds me yesterday, Bezod shared this framework on Twitter for evaluating business decisions. For those unfamiliar, Bezod is a very close friend of ours at Macon, and he's a researcher. Yes. And the article he shared is from Reforge, and it's written by a Reforge partner called Bengali Kaba. And the title is Impact Equals Environment X Skills, How to Make Career Decisions. Won't go over all of it. The relevant part to what you said is that In terms of evaluating whether a career decision is a good idea or not, he lists 
six different variables that you should consider. And just one of those is compensation. Yeah. So that's the relevant part to what you just said, you know, that five of the other variables you should take into account when considering a career move are not related to how much money you're going to earn. And I think it's fair to say like career move is different from a lot of other ways of looking at it. As in like you kind of have a roof over your head, you have all these other things that don't really need to influence your decision the same way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but I think you could think about it. You could use this framework potentially in whether you're deciding to become how much time you're going to spend on doing something independently, like how much time you're going to dedicate to your newsletter and podcast versus a regular salary paying job. I think we've actually taken a huge tangent. I know we did. Like, we barely talked about music. music. I thought we were yeah. going to talk more about music. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to read the last thing and then I'm going to get into my personal kind of POV on okay. it. So this is the last concluding paragraph. Music drives the creative economy and permeates across all levels of social platforms. From Snapchat stories to music subreddits, millions of people use social media every day to engage with music and musicians. As the creator economy continues to grow, it's the best storytellers that will reach the top. With a broad variety of available tools, artists are primed to find, engage, and connect with an audience that is just passionate and sometimes even more passionate as they are about their music. Let fans share in the story and capture the value they feel you've added to their lives. So in terms of that concluding sentence, like nothing to really disagree with there. It's all, it's all pretty straightforward. What I do think is interesting is I look at, and we, <laughs> I like using this glue analogy, right? What is the thing that you don't really see, but is actually the stuff holding everything together. And the reason why I think the creator's economy relies so much on music is because if you look at some of the platforms that are doing quite well, and obviously it's not to say newsletters don't do well, but TikTok, Snapchat, a lot, even Instagram stories, a lot of those come down to some sort of human interactive component. And I think by virtue of that, that's where music actually is such an important part of the experience. So this is me on the outside looking in. It's like, I don't necessarily need to know music to know that I can draw and create certain um, findings by virtue of the music being played. So for example, like this is the one that's always the most obvious to me. It's like, I can almost figure, I can almost like know the ethnicity of a host based off of their intro music. I wonder if that is true for this podcast. I think this one's a little bit more ambiguous, but I think it's like, I want to say this. Guitar music, honestly, traditionally is like, it's going to be such a strange insight coming from you. But I've I also never think, thought about this. I, I should probably do a study on that, actually, just so I can like back myself up. But like that's an example, right? You can derive some sort of learning, like even even the timeliness of a track used, right? Is this something that came out, you know, within the last four weeks? And is it like a viral hit? Is it a classic song? Like that's why I think the culture of music is far more interesting than just the act of listening to music because of all the findings and sort of like breadcrumbs of culture that are are positioned within it the interesting thing i think about music in those platforms and you know this last chunk of this article about storytelling and the way people interact with music is the ability to frame music in so many different ways mm. so the same snippet becomes something different by every person who posts it mm. you know they we've said this 
in other ways, you know, when they pair it with a different clip or themselves in a certain, whether it's like humorous situation or not, like that music gets recontextualized mm. and spreads, which I think is part of the reason why it's so powerful. Yeah, in regards to spreading sort of popular songs, I think you don't have to look any further than K-pop as an example of music that can spread without needing to share the same language. Mm. Like you don't have to really understand Korean to still enjoy K-pop. Albeit, I think the videos actually, this we, we're arguing about videos enhancing or adding anything to the musical experience. And maybe K-pop is actually the one that's being driven because of the visuals. Or you could say non-English music with English listeners. Yeah. They need something. They need more of a story because they don't have the lyrics to rely on. Yeah, I like that insight. So I guess I find it very interesting to see where the future of this goes because music is such a critical part of the underpinnings. It's like sort of the the gears within. Because imagine if suddenly you took music out of all the things that are currently present. Like, what's dancing without music? There is no dancing, <laughs> right? And that, that has proven to be such a big component of popular culture these days. Yeah. Right? The first thing that was placed as the first brick and within that whole movement was I think like the Jabberwockies. Mm -hmm. That's when dancing actually turned the corner and I think became branded, became based on groups, etc. And then now it's like we've talked about it also before. It's like people not getting credited for a dance that shows up in Fortnite. Mm. There's so many different ways of, of looking back on how music is the foundation of all these things that spiral out of it, yeah. Cool. Move on? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, my subject this week. Epic Games' new meta-human tool lets you craft realistic faces inside a browser. This is quite uh, been around on a bunch of tech websites, been around a bunch of gaming websites. We will include the link to The Verge, but I'm not attributing to any specific author here. This is kind of news, Yeah. rather. The video for this is genuinely, to me, unbelievable. When I first saw these videos, it did not look real to me like as in i couldn't believe that they had made this so i'm just putting this out here i know people probably will not do this but you should pause this podcast and go watch this video if you google meta humans unreal engine it will come up on youtube there's two of those videos so epic games for people who don't know is an american video game and software developer the ceo is tim sweeney epic games for those who don't know makes fortnite So Fortnite, I don't know how many people need an introduction to Fortnite. Very popular multi-platform battle royale game, which is why I'm not surprised that Tim Sweeney would be a fan of interoperability because Fortnite's like the best example of a game that anyone can play on any platform. Um, Epic Games. Unreal Engine is pretty cool, in my opinion. So Unreal Engine is the world's most open and advanced real-time 3D creation tool. This is direct from their website. But I also don't think I'm saying anything false by saying that. It is 
used not just by game developers for games that they make, but it's actually also used for a lot of interactive experiences and immersive virtual worlds in film and TV, training and simulation, live events, automotive architecture. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying this because actually many people probably have seen examples of Unreal Engine work without knowing it. On the back end. Because Lucasfilm Industries uses Unreal Engine for a lot of their Star Wars properties. I don't know exactly all of the different parts. Um, But it's not just them. You know, uh, one thing that's really, I know I sound like a commercial, but one thing that's really good about Unreal Engine that I believe in is that it's this free tool. Like you and I and anyone listening to this can download it right now and play with it. And which speaks to the philosophy of Epic Games very much so, right? Yes. And you can make games, you can make animations, you can just play around with it for whatever purposes you have, like commercial or non-commercial. So you really do have to look this up. Unreal Engine, you can pretty much make these amazing environments and objects already. The reason why MetaHumans is particularly fascinating and why a lot of people online have said this is revolutionary is because you can make very realistic humans. And they are, I mean, I'm not an animator, I'm not a 3D modeler, but they are historically, technically very hard to make. Mm -hmm. You know, hard to create realistic looking humans. Epic Games puts out these two YouTube videos saying that these metahumans, you can make them in minutes and customize a lot of things about them. Not everything, but things like hairstyles, clothing, face shape, eye color, etc. And then you can, they're ready to go. They're motion rigged already. You can insert them into whatever game or setup you already have. So, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. The main plus side is this, is that it's a new tool that improves people's existing creative processes. Right. So. It's kind of like if any Adobe software suddenly, you know, released this edition that plugged in, I don't know, like stock photos or, you know, how like Adobe did Adobe type and made it easier for you to access um, typefaces that you would originally have to pay for. for. It's kind of similar to that. And I think that people who are using animation like this there's no reason you should have to toil and suffer through using bad tools. Like there are some creatives yeah. who think like this. Okay. Like if you didn't do it the old school way, it's not good enough. I do think there's value in it when it allows, like if you are willing to sit through and be patient enough to learn something that's mediocre, then you build a bit of a moat. So like, for example, it's hard for other people to compete with you because not everyone has the patience or the time or whatever to actually learn how to use a piece of software. Sure. You know, we talked about this before, actually, with uh, Pro Tools and podcasting. Like, great example. Pro Tools is an audio editing suite and it's super complex to use, apparently. We don't use it. We use Audition. And by virtue of that, it has protected some people's jobs in the podcast world because they have this competency, but not the average, but it's a competency the average person would need a lot of time and education to pick up on. Well, I think that there is value in the time you spend learning something and you learn something about that subject. So, for example, for metahumans, let's say you were making characters the old school way before metahumans existed, then you probably learn a lot about the way humans move. Yes. Because you're not relying on this software that has already done all of the 
movement for you. You know, they did all the rigging. They did how the arms move and stuff. If you do have to do it on your own, then you really have to study like the human body. You know what you just remind me of? It's like if you're a pattern maker in oh, fashion, yeah, yeah. right? Like totally. When you start moving to the digital world, you don't even have to worry about how fabrics interact with bo- your body or like, you know, does it hang properly? Because you just design the aesthetic from the get-go. Like whether you're using, I'm making this up, but like, oh, like a hard nylon versus cotton versus wool. Like they all sit differently in your body. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that if the thing you're trying to make is not focused mainly on that thing, like if you're if you're making like a game that's about trees, okay, let's just mm-hmm. say it's about trees, but you need a couple of human figures in the background, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't use the Unreal Engine. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Like for the glory of having toiled through some more difficult way to make humans. I guess what I'm trying to say is that some creators might portray certain tools as shortcuts and look down on them for that reason. But I think like you as a creator, you have to evaluate what is worth my time to learn and what am I going to learn in that process? I mean, and how does that benefit? Yeah, the way I look at it is there's the intangible, tangible approach. Like the intangible element is just the philosophy of doing things with a high degree of detail, right? And that's like doing it the old inefficient way because for whatever reason, maybe it's it's 0.357% better, right? Versus understanding that in actuality, a lot of experiences and brands are a sum of all its parts. So it doesn't matter if you are deficient in one area. Hopefully, everything by virtue of being added together and summed up actually creates a great experience. Yeah. So, I mean, I used to be of the of the belief that you have to go to the sort of very end and do everything in a very complex, difficult, highly produced way. And now I've definitely changed gears and been like, well, you know what? I might, I know this part of this outcome is not the best, but I think it'll be made up for with the other seven elements. Mm -hmm. I also see anecdotally people get interested in the long process through using tools that are easier to begin with. So for example, you know, a lot of audio editing tools are in browser. Now you can use like Descript and you can, you know, automate podcast editing but then actually people become interested in the editing process and they think oh actually i could do this better by hand there are certain deficiencies here that i could fix yeah with by not relying on the automation yeah something else i wanted to talk about is what happens when technology helps us in general achieve realism this is actually a great question because i was just thinking about that because what does this mean like how how do i interact differently in a game that like let's say animal crossing we haven't we haven't, we haven't said talked animal, about that in a minute animal crossing a, how would animal crossing be if it was the same sort of art direction as now as cartoon characters uh-huh. versus more realistic looking people yeah i mean i think that it's interesting because both have a place i guess one on one hand you want escapism on the other hand you want realism yeah well there's there's that i think it, it it's very contextual I think with the Animal Crossing story, it's hard to imagine a photorealistic animal, like as the villagers, right? Like two of the main characters are 
a raccoon and a dog, but they don't, they're cartoonified. It'd be weird if it was like literally a photorealistic raccoon and a photorealistic dog, in my opinion. Okay. I guess it's kind of like the old school, like children's movies that had talk, quote unquote, talking dogs, talking pets. But like looking like actual dogs. Yeah. Um, Another thing that happens when technologically we reach realism is that people will flip back the other way and they'll want things that are more imaginative and artistically expressive. So one thing I've heard is a lot of video games look very good now because it's so easy to make castles look good and, you know, zombies. And Mm -hmm. it's just like this expectation. It's like baseline expectation. So actually people will start looking for something more than just like beautiful for realism. end up somewhere in the middle, right? Like you would know better than me, but is that where cyberpunk comes into play? Because there's a sense of realism, but not rooted in reality. How does one person look at cyberpunk 2077 versus what's the one redemption? Red Red Dead Redemption. Yeah. Yeah. So I think some people get overly critical about aesthetics about saying like, oh, these reflections and these shadows don't behave the way they would in real life. And I am of the position that I don't really care because that's not the main point of the game. It doesn't ruin the game. No, it doesn't. It doesn't ruin the game at all. I mean, it's much more, um, it's much more interesting to ask the question of whether the world that's being built in the game is imaginative and holds together as like a cohesive world, mm. you know? So, so that's what I think of for the shadow thing, and right? Yeah. For me, I would be like, oh, if they went through the effort of considering the shadows, then they probably consider something else, like a bigger picture. That's how I would look at it. I would look at it as a signal. I think of it as a technological hurdle. You're like, it's if it's too complicated to make the shadows work exactly the way they would in real life, then don't do it. Like, I just don't think, I personally don't think that's, like, a good use of resources for time. Like, I would sacrifice whatever time you were going to spend in game development on realism for spending more time on strong characters or better dialogue, like, Mm -hmm. things like that. But that's me. I know there's a lot of people out there who do care quite a lot about aesthetically what things look like, which is why, like, metahumans becomes very interesting because people say like, oh, the hair movement's very good and stuff. And yes, technologically, I find it interesting, but also not really necessary. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of how there has been kind of a wave of criticism towards Disney and Pixar movies that just look very good, but have no substance to them. Yeah. Got it. You know, like back in the day, like Toy Story was the original Toy Story. Did you watch it? I don't know why I'm asking you. Anyway, original Toy Story, this was like kind of groundbreaking animation, technologically speaking. It was that and was this really moving story. And now there has been criticism that it feels like they keep improving aesthetic things like water and hair and stuff like that, but sacrificing story. Yeah, that's fair. One more thing that is kind of a question, just kind of a weird thought which is about virtual humans in general. So, you know, we talked about little Michaela way back when, mm-hmm. the virtual model, and there's many like her now. I wonder what happens in our minds to sort between reality and fiction when there are more and more virtual humans and more and more virtual humans that, that we look- like recognize and 
think of as characters. I think at some point, you stop caring, not on philosophical grounds, but because of just cognitive load. Mm. I just think it's even myself, like there's nowadays, I'll read something. And even if it's from the New York Times, even from even though it's from wherever, I'm questioning the underlying motive of it. So I am, maybe people don't think that profoundly about things, which is also okay. But I know at some point, like, I'll make that differentiation. If I'm not being lied to and whatnot, like, what difference is a virtual influencer and a real influencer if I believe in the message they're saying, which kind of goes back to your story where the aesthetics, aka the aesthetics of a human or virtual avatar don't matter as much. Yeah, I just think it's it's going to be something that we will subconsciously change about ourselves when we look at advertising and static images because I think you naturally conflate a character with a real person's life. Mm -hmm. So for example, my example that I thought of is Harry Potter and Daniel Radcliffe. So the Harry Potter books come out and Harry Potter is just this fictional idea of a character. But then the movies come out and it's Daniel Radcliffe. And then you kind of subconsciously, not like in a really obvious way, you merge the two things. Like this yeah. real human, Daniel Radcliffe, who has his own life separate from the character, but then also the character himself. Mm -hmm. And with virtual humans, you just don't have that real life element. Mm -hmm. I don't really have a question about this. I just think it will be something that changes in the way we perceive fictional characters yeah. and celebrities potentially. Yeah. As an aside, Epic Games has um controversy that I wondered if was necessary to mention. They are totally not related to metahumans directly, but they are in ongoing legal battle with Apple. Yeah. Because God, I don't know how much level of detail I should go into. Essentially, Apple said that Epic Games was breaking terms of service by allowing Fortnite players to skip the Apple payment process to buy in-game stuff. Okay. Meaning Apple doesn't get their cut. Yes, Apple doesn't get their cut. So they took them off the um, iOS app store. Epic Games challenged this. The way this is somewhat related to Unreal Engine is that they are still... In, yeah, like I said, ongoing legal battle, Apple has threatened their developer accounts. So it could impact creators if Epic Games is not allowed to update their create, like cre Unreal Engine essentially on new iOS and macOS. Yeah. So basically, if you built a game unrelated to Fortnite and anything else on Unreal Engine, you might be kind of stuck. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So and, kind yeah. of a bummer. Yeah. Just thought I'd add that in. Uh, another in case side. People... Are you familiar with how people pay Epic Games and uh, Unreal? Like how Unreal is monetized? Licensing? Yeah. And royalty. But the licensing and royalty only kicks in after a million dollars. Yes. Yeah. Which is, I think, is, it speaks to their desire for adoption. To clarify, I did mention briefly earlier that Unreal Engine is free. The way they monetize is that licensing and royalty kicks in after a million dollars and then Unreal takes 5% of cuts. But they also make money because big game developers 
use Unreal Engine versus their own engines. So for example, the Final Fantasy VII remake was made with Unreal Engine versus Square Enix's own. Anyway, lots of detailed game-related news. You are welcome to look it up on your own. I feel like such a nerd talking about this at I love hearing this stuff. Have you messed around with it? No, I thought about it. I don't know if my laptop could handle it. But it's in browser. It has to be. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I will mess around with it. I'll make a Eugene. Yes, I would like that. Okay, cool. And we can all vote and see if it's accurate or not. (laughs) All right. Good place to wrap things up for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories to focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makin.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at makin.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or eugene at eugene at makin.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing... Sorry. Making it up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash making. Don't stop yet. Should we make some mention about recording from Below Ground? Did no, oh. just in general. Like, I don't know. We don't have to, or maybe in the future we can just say that. Um, we can. All right. Tuning in from a tuning oh, in. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm done. I've used up all my brain power. This episode is being recorded from FM Below Ground, powered by the Yeti Out Crew. You can also listen to this podcast on FM Below Ground.